Section 22 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Edward Stillingfleet, The Irenicum of a Comprehensive Church, Part 3. 2. We pass on to the second part of Stillingfleet's argument, which discusses the scriptural evidence of a divinely fixed form of church government. So far as positive divine law is concerned, there can be no other evidence for it, he maintains, but that of Scripture. Quote, the word of God being the only code and digest of divine laws, whatever law we look for must either be found there in express terms, or at least so couched therein that every one, by the exercise of his understanding, may, by a certain and easy collection, gather the universal obligation of the thing inquired after. Close quote. When the question is as to binding men's consciences, and not merely satisfying our historical curiosity, the appeal must be to Scripture, to the authoritative words or actions of Christ or of the Apostles. Traditions of apostolical practice gathered from succeeding ages may be very interesting, and may even throw real light upon the original constitution of the Church, but they can never furnish sufficient ground to infer any divine law. It is not enough that the practice be authentic, but it must be further clear that it was the divine intention that it should continually bind the church. Though the matter of fact be evidenced by posterity, yet the obligatory nature of the fact must depend upon scripture. Nor is it enough that the apostles' intentions be built upon men's bare surmises, nor upon after practices, but that it be clearly shown that what they did proceeded from a divine command, obligatory upon them as the church in all future time. He ridicules the reasoning of those who would infer the necessity of any form of church government because practiced by the apostles, and then prove the apostolical practice from that of succeeding ages. This, he says, is to prove the same thing by itself, to call a practice apostolical, and then pronounce it of divine authority because apostolical. Whereas in any valid argument for a divinely fixed form of church government, there are two distinct things to be proved, viz., first, what the apostolic practice was, and secondly, what was its character? Was it designed to be universally binding or not? This last point, he declares, over and over again, is the really important point which it is the special object of his treatise to settle. The controversy had been hitherto on a wrong tack in trying to settle whether independency or presbytery or episcopacy came the nearest to apostolical practice. The really urgent question is not this, but whether any of these forms, quote, be so settled by a jus divinum, that is, be so determined by a positive law of God, that all the churches of Christ are bound to observe that one form so determined without variation from it. We have put the question, as between the three main forms of church government which contended for the mastery in England and Stillingfleet's youth, but in point of fact, he has already, by the course of his reasoning, reduced the question to one between presbytery and episcopacy for he has already settled, and he recurs to the question, specially in the first chapter of the second part of his treatise, that neither the name nor the order of a church can be confined to particular congregations, but that, on the contrary, they apply with special propriety to a national society, comprehending in it many of such lesser congregations united together in one body under a form of government. Even if the primary political form of the church were acknowledged to have been that of a particular congregation, it is enough, he says, that there are other churches besides particular congregations. It is enough that whole nations professing Christianity have united themselves in the participation of religious ordinances. Such a nation is undoubtedly a true church of God, and hence it follows, quote, that there must be a form of ecclesiastical government over a nation as a church, 
as well as of civil government over it as a society governed by the same laws. Close quote. Having thus disposed of congregationalism or independency, he disposes, in a second chapter, of Quakerism, or the dream of a seculum spiritus sancti, first broached, he says, by the mendicant friars. He makes no dispute that the government of the church must be administered by officers of divine appointment. This, quote, is another thing I will yield to be of divine right. My meaning is that there must be a standing perpetual ministry in the church of God, whose care and employment must be to oversee and govern the people of God, and to administer gospel ordinances among them, and this is of divine and perpetual right. Close quote. It admits of no question that special officers were appointed in the primitive church, and the original grounds for their appointment, as enumerated in many texts of the New Testament, continue in equal force. The objects of the ministerial office remaining of necessary and perpetual use, the office itself must be held of divine perpetuity in the church. The way being thus cleared, he comes to the main subject of the present controversy. Can either presbytery or episcopacy make out for itself a jus divinum? Is either form of church government so determined by any positive law of God as to bind unalterably all Christians to its observance? The only valid plea for such a divine right is some plain institution by Christ himself, or the obligatory nature of apostolical practice. All the pith of the argument lies within these two points, and indeed within the latter. He prefixes a brief discussion as to whether any of the institutions of the law have binding force under the gospel, and he appends an interesting chapter on the opinions of the church divines since the Reformation on the subject of church government but the force of his argument is quite independent of these considerations. 1. So far as any express command of Christ himself is concerned, there is nothing can be quoted bearing on the subject. It is of no avail to argue, as many had done, from the analogy of Moses, that Christ must have instituted a special form of government for the church. Footnote. The absurd presumption of arguing in favor of a divinely constituted form of church government that it was necessary for Christ, like any other legislator, to appoint a definite constitution for the society which he established, is well ridiculed by Stillingfleet as by Hooker, from whom he quotes an admirable passage on this point. Ecclesiastical Polity, Book 3, Section 2. Quote, In matters which concern the action of God, the most dutiful way on our part is to search what God hath done, and with meekness to admire that, rather than to dispute what he, in congruity of reason, ought to do. Close quote. And footnote. Not to insist on the difference betwixt the law and the gospel, it is enough to say that not only has Christ not laid down any special rules for the constitution of the New Testament church, but that there are no such rules found in any part of the New Testament. There are, indeed, general rules of direction given in the apostolical writings, of which the following four are enumerated by Stillingfleet. All things to be done decently and in order, all to be done for edification, give no offense, do all to the glory of God. But the very statement of these principles in their extreme generality brings out in the clearest manner the scantiness of the New Testament information regarding the constitution of the church. All the laws occurring in Scripture respecting church government may be applied with equal force to several forms of government. It is not designed to characterize or define the form, but only the spirit or principles which should animate the various officers in the discharge of their duties. Such rules, for example, as are contained in the epistles to Timothy and Titus, are moral and not institutional or ritual. 
they tell us what bishops and deacons ought to be in character but they do not tell us the relation which these two classes of officers were to bear to one another and still less do they tell us as to the relations of bishops and presbyters it is plain in fact to every unprejudiced reader that the distinction of bishop and presbyter as afterwards recognized by the church had not then emerged the author of these epistles would not have understood the question which agitated the seventeenth century and has not ceased to agitate the nineteenth it is not to be denied that timothy and titus occupied special positions of superiority in the primitive church and two indisputable inferences may be drawn from this which may be turned in favor of episcopacy viz that the superiority of some church officers over others is not inconsistent with the new testament and secondly that it is not repugnant to the primitive church for certain officers to have power over more than one congregation but upon the whole the examples of timothy and titus decide nothing definitely in favor of either of the disputed forms of church government the mere fact that it is fairly questioned whether their office was that of temporary evangelists or of fixed bishops is enough to invalidate the authoritative character of their examples if they acted not as bishops nothing can be drawn from their example necessarily enforcing the continuance of the superiority which they enjoyed to those who argue that timothy and titus might ordain and appoint others to succeed them in their places he replies that the question is not what they might do but what they did neither he adds is what they did the whole question but what they did with an opinion of the necessity of doing it whether they were bound to do it or not if the former view be taken the binding law or command must be produced which will hardly be if we embrace only the received canon of scripture thus we see then stillingfleet concludes in very emphatic terms this part of his argument quote, that neither the qualifications of the persons nor the commands for a right exercise of the office committed to them nor the whole epistles to timothy and titus do determine any one form of government to be necessary in the church of god Close quote. the special actions of our lord which may be supposed to have any bearing on the subject are examined the mission of the apostles as described in the gospels matthew ten luke six the alleged primacy of st peter and the relation between the twelve and the seventy disciples along with some other details all are discussed with a similar conclusion nowhere is there any evidence of any intention on the part of christ to fix the special form of government for the church nothing is said or appointed by him which is not equally applicable to a diversity of particular forms there is therefore nothing in any of our lord's actions or in any special rules laid down in scripture which determines the necessity of a particular form of church government two the only remaining argument to be considered is that which arises out of the practice of the apostles stillingfleet has bestowed great pains upon this part of his argument and notwithstanding certain irrelevancies which mark more or less the whole progress of his reasoning we do not know that there is anything in english theological literature at once more compact and exhaustive on the subject it divides itself into two inquiries what the apostolic practice really was and secondly how far it is binding upon us or in his own words how far they acted for the determining any one form of government as necessary for the church in carrying out the first of these inquiries it is especially necessary to free ourselves from prepossessions Quote, nothing has been a more fruitful mother of mistakes and errors than the looking upon the practice of the primitive church through the glass of our own customs in illustration of this he quotes the roman catholic use of the word misa whenever they meet with it as applying to the sacrifice of the altar whereas it originally meant only the public service of the church so called from the dismission of the people after it with an ite misa est 
and was equally applied to the service of the catechumens, misa catechumenorum, and the service of the communicants, misa fidelium, quote, which afterwards, the former discipline of the church decaying, engrossed the name misa to itself, and when the sacrifice of the altar came up among the papists, it was appropriated to that. Close quote. In the same way, the Romanists pervert the meaning of the word leturgain, translating the phrase letur gunton auton, sacrificantibus illis, although it be not only contrary to the sense of the word in the New Testament, but to the exposition of Chrysostom and others. But it is unnecessary, he says, to search curiously for examples of this abusive mode of argument. The subject itself is full of them. Quote, as the argument for the popular election of pastors from the grammatical sense of the word kerotonia, for lay elders from the name presbyteroi, and modern episcopacy from the use of the word episcopos in scripture. It is important, therefore, to discriminate accurately the use of names, and to draw conclusions only from the undoubted practice of the apostolic times, if that can be made appear what it was. The only real guide to us in such an inquiry is the customs of the Jewish synagogue to which the apostles, beyond question, conformed in planting Christian churches. This is argued at great length, and the various points of analogy betwixt the Jewish synagogue and the primitive church brought out in detail. These are found to consist in the general character of the public service, the ordination of church officers, the formation of presbyteries in the several churches, and the mode of government of those presbyteries. The primitive order of public worship corresponded to that of the synagogue in the following essential particulars. 1. Public fellowship, koinonia. 2. Solemn prayers. And 3. Reading and exposition of scripture. The well-known passage from the second apology of Justin Martyr, respecting the primitive worship, is quoted with the remark, what could have been spoken with greater congruity and correspondency to the synagogue, abating the necessary observation of the Eucharist as proper to Christianity. The practice of ordination was plainly derived from the synagogue. Quote, the priests under the law were never ordained by imposition of hands, as the elders and rulers of the synagogue were and if any of them came to that office, they, as well as others, had peculiar designation and appointment to it. It is, then, a common mistake to think that the ministers of the gospel succeed by vows of correspondence and analogy to the priest under the law, which mistake hath been the original of many errors. The application of the name of priests to Christian ministers, naturally following the usage of the term among both Jews and Gentiles, has led in process of time to all the sacrificial ideas connected with it, and finally to the Mass itself. So he argues. As the fact of ordination was derived from the synagogue, so the special mode of it, by the laying on of hands, the number of persons authorized to confer it, and its supposed effect, were all drawn from the same source. These features of the Christian Church were originally nothing more than copies from the Jewish Church. The one grew out of the other in a natural manner the younger institution out of the old, taking some of its most characteristic peculiarities and stamping them with a new life and meaning. The very same process of development was repeated in both cases. The rite of ordination, for example, was at first common to any presbyter among the Jews. Every one, himself regularly ordained, had the power of ordaining disciples, as Maimonides expressly affirms, and also the Gemara Babylonia, as quoted by Selden. But in course of time this liberty was restrained, and it was agreed that none should ordain others without the presence, or at least the sanction, of the prince of the Sanhedrin, the Archisunagogos. The same change gradually sprang up in the Christian church. 
at first as jerome tells us the presbyters did rule the church in common communi presbyterorum concilio ecclesiae gubernantur they enjoyed alike the power of ordaining other presbyters stillingfleet gives abundant evidence of this from patristic and even papal authority and especially enters into a long discussion as to the consistency of jerome and the true opinions of arius both of whom appear so prominent in the controversy respecting presbytery and episcopacy there can be no fair question he thinks that jerome consistently maintains the original identity of presbyters and bishops while asserting at the same time that the superiority of the bishop was an apostolical tradition or a custom which might be traced to the apostolic age the truth was that the exercise of the right of ordination by all presbyters alike had a tendency to create division and so the right became restricted as previously among the jews Quote, the main controversy is where this restraint began and by whose act whether by any act of the apostles or only by the prudence of the church itself as it was with the sanhedrin but in order to our peace he adds i see no such necessity of deciding it both parties granting that in the church such a restraint was laid upon the liberty of ordaining presbyters and the exercise of that power may be restrained still granting it to be radically and intrinsically in them Close quote. to hold it expedient notwithstanding this radical power of ordination in presbyters that the right should only be exercised by a superior order in the church and to hold that presbyterian ordination is in itself essentially unlawful are two entirely distinct propositions and the latter opinion he dares with some confidence assert to be a stranger to our church of england as he promises to show more fully afterwards concerning arius he maintains that his special heresy was not at all the assertion of the identity and order of presbyters and bishops in which respect he only agreed with jerome augustine ambrose chrysostom theodoret theophylact but his having carried out this opinion to the extent of quote, separating from bishops and their churches because they were bishops whereas had his mere opinion about bishops been the ground of his being condemned there can be no reason assigned why this heresy if it were then thought so was not mentioned either by socrates theodoret sozomen or evagrius before whose time he lived but for epiphanius and augustine who have listed him in the role of heretics it either was for other heretical opinions maintained by him or they took the name heretic and it is evident they often did for one who upon a matter of different opinion from the present sense of the church did proceed to make separations from the unity of the catholic church which i take to be the truest account of the reputed heresy of arius after dwelling briefly upon the number of persons required to perform the ceremony of ordination among the jews and equally in the primitive church three in each case and also of the supposed effect of the reception of the divine presence or the holy spirit Stillingfleet proceeds to draw his argument to a close in three propositions, which embrace, at the same time, he says, the full resolution of all the points corresponding betwixt the Sanhedrin and the primitive church. He introduces his propositions by a statement as to the original meaning of episkopos, the intention of which, he says, was to qualify the importance of the word presbyter to a sense proper to the gospel state. Primarily, the word imported duty more than honor, and was not a title above presbyter but rather used by way of diminution and qualification of the power implied in the name of presbyter having cleared this point all that he has to say concerning the settlement of the primitive church by the apostles may be summed up as follows first that we have no such certainty of apostolical practices as can constitute a divine right secondly that there is no evidence that the apostles bound themselves to any one fixed course in modeling churches 
and thirdly that even if it could be proved that they did this their example would not necessarily bind us he argues the first of these points at considerable length from the equivalency of the names of bishop and presbyter in the new testament acts eleven thirty fourteen twenty three twenty eight seventeen first timothy three one titus one five from the defectiveness ambiguity partiality and repugnancy of the records of the ages immediately succeeding that of the apostles the clear impossibility of making out any use divinum for church government from scripture has driven controversialists he says quote, to follow the scent of the game into this wood of antiquity where it is easier to lose ourselves than to find that which we are upon the pursuit of Close quote. He has, perhaps, colored strongly his picture of the uncertainty of ecclesiastical tradition, but those who have most critically examined the subject will be the most likely to agree with him. He speaks with peculiar force of the sub-epistolic age, from the close of the Acts of the Apostles to the middle of Trajan, as a tempus adelon, in the words of Scaliger. Christian antiquity is then most defective, unhappily, when its light would have been most useful. The lists or catalogues of bishops set down by many ecclesiastical analysts are treated very slightly. Eusebius found it no easy matter to find out who succeeded the apostles in the churches planted by them. What becomes, then, of the unquestionable line of succession and the large diagrams made of the apostolical churches, with everyone's name set down in his order? Irenaeus is found attributing the tradition of apostolical doctrine to the succession of presbyters which before he had done to bishops. He asserts not only the succession of presbyters to the apostles, but likewise attributes the successio episcopatus to these very presbyters. What strange confusion must this raise in any one's mind that seeks for a succession of episcopal power above presbyters from the apostles by the testimony of Irenaeus, when he so plainly attributes both the succession to presbyters and the episcopacy too, which he speaks of. But it is not Irenaeus alone who tells us that presbyters succeed the apostles. Even Cyprian, who pleads so much for obedience to the bishops, as they were then constituted in the church, yet speaks often of his compresbyteri, and in his epistle to Florentius Papianus he attributes apostolic succession to all that were prepositi, which name implies not the relation of bishops to presbyters as over them, but to the people, and is therefore common both to bishops and presbyters. Jerome saith that presbyters are loco apostolorum, and that they do apostolico gradui succidere, and the so much magnified Ignatius presbuteroi est topon sunedrion ton apostolon, that the presbyters succeeded in the place of the bench of apostles. The sum of his argument is that no clear line of episcopal succession can be traced in many cases. The claim of a jus divinum for episcopacy implies that in all cases the apostles, in withdrawing from the government of churches, did substitute single persons to succeed them but the evidence for this egregiously fails even in the most conspicuous churches. In Rome, for example, quote, the succession is as muddy as the Tiber itself, for here Tertullian, Rufinus, and several others place Clement next to Peter. Irenaeus and Eusebius set Anacletus before him, Epiphanius and Optatus, both Anacletus and Cletus. Augustinus and Damasus, with others, make Anacletus, Cletus, and Linus all to precede him. What way shall we find to extricate ourselves out of this labyrinth so as to reconcile it with the certainty of the form of government in the Apostles' times? Having shown how little certainty there is of any divinely fixed form of church government in the apostolic age, 
he proceeds to show how the apostles probably acted according to the several circumstances of places and persons which they had to deal with he sketches in other words the formation of the christian church according to the natural law of development which it appears to him to have followed his idea is the genuinely historic one that the government of the church adapted itself to circumstances and the varying increase of the community of believers in different districts a small number of believers did not require the same number of teachers and governors as a great church did in some cases a single pastor with deacons under him was all that was needed and every such single pastor was a bishop in the sense that he had none above to command him but not of course in the special sense of having presbyters under him in larger churches consisting of a multitude of deacons he supposes that the government was settled in a college of presbyters this is his interpretation of the apostles quote, ordaining elders in every city and paul's calling for the elders from ephesus and his writing to the bishops presbyters and deacons of philippi we have many remaining footsteps he says of such a college of presbyters established in the most populous churches in the apostolical times among these presbyters some attended most to ruling others labored most in preaching but none of them were lay elders in the dogmatic presbyterian sense for any presbyter in the new testament sense is also a bishop and is described as having pastoral charge over a flock which is inconsistent with the notion of a lay elder so far he supposes the church to have developed in the apostolic age and in a subsequent chapter he traces its further development in the constitution of a president or bishop in the special sense over each college of presbyters in the second century this manner of government in the church appears clearly Quote, the bishop sitting as the ishna prince or chief in the sanhedrin and the presbyters as ignatius expresseth it acting as the common council of the church to the bishop the bishop being as the archon tes ecclesias answering to the archon tes poleos and the presbyters as the boule tes ecclesias answering to the boule kath ekasten polin as origen compares them whereby he fully describes the form of government in his time in the church which was by an ecclesiastical senate and a president in it ruling the society of christians in every city Close quote. we need not trace further his historical picture according to which churches gradually extended from cities to the surrounding villages and thence enlarged into dioceses and subsequently into provinces the result of the whole is to bring out the varying human element which entered into the growth of the church the government was the result not of any special divine law but of a succession of laws springing up according to the several states and conditions wherein the church was and as it gradually grew up so was the power of the church by mutual consent fitted to its state in its several ages in further evidence of which it is found as a matter of fact that there were several churches such as the ancient scottish church without any bishops for a long time and other churches he alleges which discontinued bishops for a great while where they had been the final strength of his argument yet remains even if a stronger case could be made out for a uniform apostolical practice as to church government it does not follow that such a practice would be necessarily binding upon us many things were done by the apostles which were suitable merely to the exigencies of the primitive church and carried with them no binding force after the occasion for them had passed away let any one consider but these few particulars he says quote, and judge how far the pleaders for a divine right of apostolical practice do look upon themselves as bound now to observe them as dipping in baptism the use of love feasts community of goods 
the holy kiss, by Tertullian called Signaculum Orationis, yet none look upon themselves as bound to observe them now, and yet all acknowledge them to have been the practice of the apostles. Close quote. His concluding review of the opinions of reformed divines is extremely interesting, but we cannot do more than indicate its general purport. He shows, beyond all dispute, that the most distinguished divines of the English Reformation, Cranmer, Whitgift, Parker, Hooker, and, later, Cozens, Lowe, Bridges, Sutcliffe, and King James himself, were all of opinion that no definite form of church government was laid down in Scripture, or commanded to the Church of God, very nearly Whitgift's words in his reply to Cartwright. He quotes the detailed opinions of Hales and Chillingworth to the same effect. He then adds the testimony of foreign divines in abundance, and of learned men, particularly Bacon and Grotius. All these, quote, assert in terms that the form of church government does not depend upon any unalterable law, but is left to the prudence and discretion of every particular church to determine it according to its suitableness to the state, condition, and temper of the people whereof it consists, and conducibleness to the ends for which it is instituted. Close quote. Others, such as Calvin, Beza, Melanchthon, while holding Presbyterian parity to be the primitive form, yet approve of episcopacy in special circumstances as lawful and expedient. Others still, while judging episcopacy to be the primitive form, do not hold it to be unalterably binding, but that those churches which are without it are truly constituted churches, and their ministers lawfully ordained by mere presbyters. This is given as the opinion, not only of Jewell, but of Field, Downham, Saravia, Andrews, and others. The stoutest champions for episcopacy before their late unhappy divisions, he says, quote, acknowledged that ordination, performed by presbyters in cases of necessity, is valid, which I have already shown doth evidently prove that episcopal government is not founded upon any unalterable divine right. Close quote. This closes his lengthened argument, in which he believes that he has laid down a sure foundation for peace and union. The result of the whole has been to prove that the form of church government is a mere matter of prudence regulated by the word of God. Prudence, therefore, is the first principle which must be used in the resettlement of the church. The second principle is that that form of government is the best which, according to principles of Christian prudence, comes nearest to apostolical practice and tends most to advance the peace and unity of the church. What this form is he does not presume to determine but no better key to its discovery can be given than the advice of his late majesty of glorious memory to divines of differing opinions to quote, lay aside private interests and reduce episcopacy and presbytery into such a well-proportioned form of superiority and subordination as may best resemble the apostolical and primitive times so far forth as the different conditions of the times and the exigencies of all considerable circumstances will admit Close quote. The elements of such a church constitution are, one, the restoration of presbyters as the senate to the bishop, two, the contraction of dioceses and appointment of bishops at least in every county town, three, the constant preaching of the bishop and residence in his diocese, four, the solemnity of ordinations with the consent of the people, five, the observation of provincial synods twice every year, six, the employment of none in judging church matters but the clergy. Finally, whatever form of government is determined upon by lawful authority should be submitted to in so far as it contains nothing contrary to the word of God. 
the very fact that the determination of church government is a matter of liberty makes the government binding when once lawfully determined such was the ideal church of stillingfleet probably of many of the younger and more thoughtful clergy on the eve of the restoration unhappily their voice was unheard or at least uninfluential the old parties represented by baxter and calamy on one side and sheldon and morley on the other exasperated and hardened by their long struggle continued for a time to wrangle with one another footnote both baxter and calamy were in a certain sense moderate men and if what is known as the worcester declaration october sixteen sixty had become law they would have probably accepted the preferment offered them in the church of england but they had many narrow prejudices and neither calamy at breda nor both at the savoy conference can be said to have managed matters well in the interests of a comprehensive church End footnote both were alike incapable of rising above the dogmatisms which enslaved them and which had desolated the country the end was sufficiently mournful and bears mournful consequences unto this day but the time may come when thoughts of wisdom and moderation will prevail on this as on other subjects and we may see the end as stillingfleet in his concluding sentence dares to hope quote, of our strange divisions and unchristian animosities while we pretend to serve the prince of peace Close quote. End of chapter 7, part 3. End of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, volume 1, by John Tullock.